Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's one of the best-known idioms in the English language. Even James Bond said it in the 1965 film Thunderball. What a blow it must have been. You having a failure. Well, you can't win them all. You can't win them all. The thing that every teen tells themselves after a loss. The belief that losing is part of the process of winning. You gotta get your losses out of the way. Learn your lessons before you're able to climb the mountaintop. Every team has to lose, right? Well, every team except one. One team defied the laws of gravity. One team was able to navigate a perfect regular season and a perfect postseason. The 1972 Miami Dolphins. Miami has the Dolphins, the greatest football team. We take the ball from goal to goal like no one's ever seen. The 1972 Miami Dolphins didn't just win a Super Bowl. They wrote their names in the history books of the NFL forever. And so we're going to take a look at that team today through the eyes of a fan and an author, Marshall John Fisher. His book, 17 and 0, Miami, 1972, and the NFL's only perfect season, gives you a look inside the team and a look inside the city to better understand both. Ultimately, culminating with Super Bowl VII. Today. This day in Miami history. January 14th, 1973. 50 years ago today, when the Miami Dolphins won their first Super Bowl in a way that can never be duplicated. All right, so um, we are here today with author Marshall John Fisher. Uh, Mr. Fisher is the author of a number of books, uh, most recently. Uh, obviously, the book that we'll be focusing on today is the book 17 and 0, uh, with a focus on the Miami Dolphins, obviously, of the 1972 season, the champions of the 1973 Super Bowl. Uh, Mr. Fisher, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Matthew? I'm doing very well, thank you. So, um, obviously, this book is focused on and around the Dolphins, and, and you do uh, rather extensive work kind of go, really going week by week, day by day in, in the story of, of the 1972 Dolphins, the perfect Dolphins. Um, but it, it's an interesting book because it's not just that. It's it's uh, part, you know, game by game report, part memoir, part like 
intersectional history of what's going on at that time. Yeah. What inspired you to write this specific kind of book? Uh, well, well, first of all, I'd always intended to write a book about this team and this season. Uh, having grown up in Miami, I was a nine-year-old kid during that perfect season, and it's made a big impression on me, as I think it did on everyone who was there at the time. And uh, I, I finally got around to writing it for the 50th anniversary, and uh, I, in some ways, took the uh, structural model of a previous book I wrote called The Terrible Splendor, which was about uh, three different tennis players in the 1930s, and it was about a match between the U.S. and Germany right before the war. So in that book, I incorporated a lot of different things. I told a lot of different stories at the same time, both personal about the players and also about the history of the time and the, what was going on, and I interwove those all together. So I kind of wanted to do the same thing with this book. I wanted to, I wanted to write about not just about the football team and the football season, although I did want to write about that in detail, uh, and, and I wanted to do it in more detail than it had been done before. But I also wanted to weave in the stories of what was going on in 1972, which was a very interesting year. And particularly, particularly in Miami, Miami was kind of a focal point for a lot of what was going on in society in the US, around the country, politically and socially, uh, with the Vietnam War and the Watergate investigation getting started. Uh, President Nixon was uh, in Miami a lot of the time on Key Biscayne. And, um, you know, all this stuff was going on and, all, and, you know, the women's movement and the civil rights and just a lot of stuff going on. I wanted to kind of weave that into the story. Yeah, when you when you look at Miami, particularly in that time in, in 71, 72, mm -hmm. 73, it is not yet the the metropolis that we no. kind of are familiar with today. Right. It had become a really central uh, to a lot of what was going on in that particular time. You mentioned President Nixon and his time on Key Biscayne hosting both of the political conventions that year. Um, the Democrats kind of learning the lesson of the GOP in 68 and, and realizing Miami might be more hospitable than Chicago. Um, yeah. It's just interesting that all these forces kind of combine and in the center of it becomes this football team, which didn't even exist, you know, nine years before. Um yeah. So you decide you want to tackle this this project of writing about this team that's so important to you and, and so significant to the history of of the town and the sport. What's the process like? Because you decide on this unique style, how how do you? It seems very hard to organize. As someone who's done a little bit of writing, not the level mm -hmm. that you have or the length that you have, but it, it seems very hard to organize. How'd you go about doing that? Well, you, you outline, you know, uh, just like with <laughs> it's really. You know, it's the same skills I learned in high school, really. Uh, uh, when you're writing a paper, you, you get your information, your outline. In this case, it's a very long, detailed outline. I know. So before I start actually writing, I know I have a whole, I know what's going into each chapter with each week and each game. In this case, you know, each it was structured around each game being one week. And I would put in, you know, what was going on that week. But also I wanted to tell about a bunch of different players' stories. So I had to decide, you know, which week will I talk about this guy? You know, which week I'll talk about Bill Stanfield and which week I'll throw in, you know, Mercury Morris or whatever. You know, sometimes it depended on if they had had a great game that week. Um, and other times, you know, it, it was more complicated. So I wanted to make sure I got everybody in and not all at the same time, you know, and you just basically make an outline. And then, and then by the time you start writing, you know where everything's going to go. Although, of course, things change while you're writing. You can't be too rigid but you have to have a good idea before you start. So as you're, you're working through this book, there are a few themes that uh, I guess I, I hit on that I kind of wanted to explore a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, starting at the top with Coach Shula, um, a, a word that gets thrown around a lot with him and, and a concept that gets echoed a lot is the winning edge. 
Uh, it's something that players mentioned, that Shula had mentioned, that it's this, this, this kind of this Shula mentality. How do you define, and you again, you hit on it throughout the book, but if you had to kind of encapsulate it as like a, a thesis statement for a, for a, 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 a cult, or maybe it was a cult uh, in 72 for the <laughs> yeah, Dolphins, yeah. what is the winning edge? Well, yeah, I think that's a phrase. I think he came up with that himself, and it, it, and he used it throughout his career, and it was the title of his his autobiography as well. Um, he, you know, he was. I would say it was attention to detail. Uh, you know, he he didn't let anything get by him. Any little thing he could come up with to work on that would give them an advantage over the other team, all within the bounds of fair play. Of course, he was extremely ethical about sports. I think about everything, but. You know, he would not do anything. There was one time where someone found a playbook of the opposing team. They had left it in the on the field or something, on the practice field, and he refused to even look at it. He said, take that away. I don't want to see it, you know, because that would violate uh, the sense of fair play. But Shula worked. He was, you know, you could call him a workaholic, but he just loved, he loved coaching so much. And he just did everything he could do prepare his team and give them you know that one little edge and the players all talked about it too they you know it might be uh the way they practiced in the heat in the miami summer you know that would give them an edge over teams coming in uh it could be anything uh but he he tried to leave no stone unturned there was one big stone little stone he did leave unturned that led to a the most famous play in the super bowl with garo yepremian and i can talk about that later but there was one thing he overlooked there but uh in general he overlooked nothing and that was what gave them the winning edge, I think. So when when you look at the the players who are kind of adopting this mentality, something else that I kind of see throughout the book is a belief that, and I think in some cases it's true, and in some cases it might be a little bit of false humility coming out. But this, uh, the the uh, the outcast, the the player left aside, the player ignored, like. Uh, players that don't believe they had the physical gifts, but they they adopted the edge. They're able to manifest yeah. it. How much yeah. of that do you think among those players? And again, I know it's kind of a player by player basis, but how much of that do you think is legitimate? How much do you think that's kind of taking on a belief to manifest it into reality? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it really was something that I encountered over and over again. I mean, first of all, it was true that the team was made up largely of players that had been cut by other teams or just not drafted, you know, and they came down as a free agents, a number of them. That's why they were the no-name defense. Sure. Uh, you know, players like uh, Doug Swift, who played for Amherst, you know, Division Three college. And, of course, there's no way he was going to play in the NFL. But through a connection, he got a tryout in Miami and ended up being their starter for six years. And other players, you know, Manny Fernandez, just one of the greatest players, wasn't even drafted. Uh, and uh, an offense, too. They had a number of players like that. So, I think that was a, maybe a psychological help to them. They use or they used it as such. But the other thing you alluded to is that uh, how a lot of them would say when you talk to them in, or in interviews, they'd say, "Oh, I wasn't that good an athlete. I just, you know, I got the most out of what I had, or I was highly motivated." But and they said, you know, it's funny because I mean they were incredible athletes. Yeah, some of them were not as big or as fast as that NFL position normally warranted, but. Um, it doesn't mean they weren't great athletes. You know, you can be, you can be smaller and maybe not as fast, but you have other athletic attributes, uh, you know, they, like Nick Bonacani was not supposed to be able to play in the NFL because he was too small and too slow, which that could be the team's uh, motto, you know, too yeah. small and too slow. So many of them said that about themselves or, or, or it was said about them, but Bonacani had 
tremendous athletic mental ability. That's athletic, uh, an athletic quality too, is clutch play and being smart on the field. And he, you know, of course he hit very hard. <laughs> he was very <laughs> strong. Uh, and he was just very athletically gifted, just not with size and speed compared to other NFL players. And that was true of other guys like uh, Tim Foley, Howard Twilley on offense, um, just a whole bunch of them. But, but, you know, even Bob Greasy said in interviews, I really wasn't the greatest athlete. And this is a guy who was, you know, he was all state in three sports in high school. He went to Purdue. He played all the three of those sports for Purdue, at least the first couple of years. Uh, and, you know, he was one of the, he's in the Hall of Fame in the NFL. So you know, that's a pretty good athlete. <laughs> but they but they like to think about, of themselves that way, I guess. I, I feel like a lot of great athletes have to really convince themselves that no one believes in them, even though they are mm-hmm. actually quite good at the sport that they play. Yeah, that, think, uh, go ahead. it definitely can give you a mental edge. Yeah. If you think yeah. people don't think you're great and it makes you try harder. Yeah. So this team is, is put together and they go to the Super Bowl in 71, in the 72 Super Bowl, yeah, yeah. and lose. And kind of the opposite side of the winning edge, that kind of the edge that is created in that loss. I I, I'm, I I contrast with a team that was familiar to Coach Shula, which is the Colts in Super Bowl three. Yeah. Um, growing up in Baltimore, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit familiar, more familiar with the Baltimore football history than Miami yeah. football history. I'm, t- I'm taking it on now as I've been here for yeah. fit long enough. But that team lost in Super Bowl three and then won in Super Bowl five. And a lot of those players – and obviously Shula had, had left for Miami before the Super yeah. Bowl five victory. A lot of the Colts players after Super Bowl five just couldn't get over the fact that they had lost Super Bowl three, that even winning Super Bowl five against the Cowboys, it, it didn't really offer any relief. It was like they were happy that they had won, but the the mm-hmm. specter of Super Bowl three constantly hung over them. How do you think this team was able to mm-hmm. avoid that and and derive, obviously going perfect helps, but derive that it, it was a it was a real motivator, a catalyst, and they achieved, mm-hmm. and then they achieved again. They won back to back. How do you yeah. think the team was able to like not fall into the trap of of despair or or depression about the loss and really use it as the fuel to win? Yeah. Okay. Uh <laughs> interesting. Super Bowl three was such a humiliating loss, I think, for the Colts, because it wasn't just a Super Bowl loss. It was a at that point, it was the um it was still the NFL against the AFL in the right. Super Bowl. So it wasn't even, they weren't even the same league. And and no, most people thought the AFL really was not in the same league as the NFL in the sense of not being as good. So they, you know, Shula finally won the NFL championship with the Colts, you know, that year. And uh, with, and in fact, with Earl Morrill quarterbacking for him and substituting for Unitas, just as he did for Greasy in 72. But um Shula had trouble motivating his team in that in Super Bowl three because they just thought, like everybody else, they were going to kill the Jets. And Shula kind of knew he. Had, I think he had an inkling of what, and he tried to get them to work hard and practice, and they just couldn't take it seriously. And uh, you know, there was a humiliating loss. That now wasn't just for those for those players, but for Shula, you know, it was really rough. And the owner blamed him, Rosenblum blamed Shula for the loss and was putting him down publicly and public and the next year they didn't do they didn't have that great a record so he really was kind of when they when Miami came offering him a job he was ready to go because things had kind of gone sour in Baltimore so he came to Miami but you know it's a fresh start but he still was considered the guy who couldn't win the big one because he had lost he'd never gone all the way he either lost 
the NFL championship, or when he finally won that, then he lost this humiliating Super Bowl. So he comes to Miami and immediately makes them a winner. They go to the playoffs the first year. Second year, they go to the Super Bowl. Again, another loss to Dallas. Um, and I guess that was also humiliating, but not in the same way. I mean, Dallas was a great team, and and they were ready to win because they had lost the previous Super Bowl. So you can't compare that to Super Bowl three in, in terms of what a, a bad loss, as bad a loss. But now Shula's lost two Super Bowls. You know, he's really he's really got a, a chip on his shoulder. Uh, so he was absolutely obsessed with getting back there and winning it the next year in 72. And he was one of the great things about him as a coach is he was able to communicate this or transmit this to every player on his team. And they talked about that. He'd go up to them one by one after that Super Bowl loss and say, look, remember how you feel right now and make sure you never feel this way again. And he got every man to buy into this mantra of getting back and avenging that loss. And so that was a really great accomplishment. It, it led to an undefeated season. That was not the goal, but it, you know that that incredible obsession led to this perfect season. And I think there was such a catharsis when he finally won it, uh, even before he won the second one. After winning, finally winning the Super Bowl, the only perfect team ever. And you know that summer, that next summer, he said how he just felt so happy, and he'd finally gotten to the place where he always wanted to be. So I think for him, that completely obliterated those past losses. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned a name there that I, I do want to talk about for a second, because, again, another guy I'm fascinated by and a, another Baltimore-Miami connection is Earl Morrill. Um, does he have the most unique career in NFL history? Like where yeah, <laughs> it's it's maybe hating character just because he his most famous like contributions. He's not the guy who's supposed to be playing, but he's able to do it and do it well. Yeah, well, you know, Morrill was a great quarterback and he played. Oh, total number of years. I, I my, is it nineteen or twenty? I don't know. But he, uh, you know, he started in the fifties, <laughs> in the late fifties, and uh, he was a terrific quarterback. He led uh, Michigan State, I think, to the whatever the Rose Bowl or whatever bowl they played. He led them to a great victory. He was a great quarterback drafted. Um, you know, late in his career, people thought of him as a career backup, but that was not true. He had started as many games. I think he had started more than half the games he had played in his career. Um, but it's true that in you know in 1968 and again in 1972, when he was just supposed to be a backup to a great All-Pro quarterback, Johnny Unitas and then Bob Greasy, each of those guys got hurt for the whole, most or a good part of the season. Unitas was practically the whole season, and uh, and Greasy was hurt in Game Five in '72. And in both cases, Earl Morrill came in and took the team all the way with and, you know they were 15 and one in Baltimore in '68 until they lost to the Jets in the Super Bowl. And in Miami, he took them to 11 straight victories. It was a huge part of that perfect season. So he, you know, I'm sure I know he had a lot of pride. He did not consider himself a career backup at all. He was a great quarterback. He was the MVP in the league, you know, that year. So uh, it was hard for him to be replaced by Greasy in the AFC championship game. But he was always a team man and he took it well and, you know, went right back to being the backup. But yeah, very interesting guy, very down to earth, homespun kind of guy. And he's very, very different than Greasy in that, that way, in that he he was very, uh, he got along with everybody, kind of joking around a lot. He was very relaxed, whereas Greasy was this kind of workaholic, professorial type in charge, very quiet, but a real, real leader. So they were very different, uh, but Earl Morrow was a great guy to have, an uh, interesting person and player. And uh, that was the uh, stroke of genius, I guess, from Shula to bring him in right before the 72 season. 
at age 38 when he was about to retire. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And especially considering how poor he looked in the preseason, the idea that yes. he would actually come through in the regular season so strongly. I just, man, I, I, I'm, I'm just, he's such an interesting character to me. Yes. So, so th- this, this bandwagon starts rolling and, and they start racking up victories. They, they go through a, a preseason ironically with three losses, but they, yeah. they, the, the wheels seem to be clicking even in losses. It seems like some pieces seem to be coming together. And, I, I think another big piece of this, again, that I think you, you explain really well in your book, uh, a figure who plays a really important role in the history of the league, but maybe doesn't receive the the kind of acknowledgement that, that's needed is Bob Matheson and kind of the um, Bill Arnsparger's kind of innovation yeah. with the 53 defense that yeah. kind of becomes the 3-4 defense. Can can you tell us a little bit about Bob Matheson, who he is, and and kind of how his role in this team kind of changes the league? Yeah, and another guy, you know, considered himself not a great athlete, but he was uh, incredible because he he was drafted by Cleveland, um, and they wanted to use him as a line, defensive lineman. But he was kind of size wise, he was kind of in between lineman and linebacker. He was sort of able to play both, but they they were using him as a lineman, and he wasn't really doing that great. And and uh, they traded him down to Miami, and then he was in '72. You know, he wasn't really supposed to be a starter. But uh, they had a lot of injuries on the defensive line, and he, they wanted to use him as a linebacker, but then they had all these injuries on the defensive line. And Bill Arnsparger came up with this idea of using Bob Matheson as a, a hybrid player where he could line up on the line but then drop back for pass coverage, or he could rush in the quarterback, and he was really good at both. And uh, they called it the 53 defense because that was his number. And, uh, yes, it was a precursor to the 3-4 the, the defense and, and uh, to the – even to this um, 
this this whole system of you know having a guy who might you don't know if he's going to rush or fade back into coverage. So uh, Arnsparger definitely gets credit for starting that whole thing, and uh, it was a tremendously effective in '72 because no one had done it before, and the offenses were befuddled. You know, the quarterbacks didn't know what this guy was going to do, and they would. He'd line up on either side, front and or sometimes he'd line a linebacker and then come rushing in. He could do anything, so it really worked tremendously well. I just I think it's funny because I mean, basically the three big money positions in the NFL right now are quarterback, left tackle, and that kind of tweener hybrid pass rusher guy that can drive yeah. back. And I'm like, yeah. poor Bob Matheson was just a half to, half century before his time. He'd be yeah. making the big big bucks today. But um, no, yeah. it was it just kind of seeing that talent and kind of shaping a, a, a whole defense out of it. Uh, it's again, it's kind of the, the remarkable innovation of this perfect team. So they get into the, the season again, they start picking up wins. Bob Greasy's injured. Earl Morrill steps in. Doesn't seem like much is lost to you. Is there a game in the regular season that you kind of see as a hinge point for this team? Like, Oh, this is really like, it's really going to happen for them. Um, I kind of look at the the one that comes to my mind having read is that kind of the way they survived against Buffalo in that blunder bowl game. Does that jump out to you or is maybe there another game that jumps out to you? Um, not, not really that one. I mean, uh, because that was one of the worst, that's probably the worst game, you know, that just everything bad happened, the penalties and the fumbles and, um, and, uh, they hung on. It's not as close as it looked. It was one point game, but they were up by eight at the end, near the end of the game and you can't get a two point conversion back then. So. They were never really in danger in the fourth quarter of losing, I think. But um, well, the cra- or I'll just say the craziest thing about that game that you mentioned it, and I don't know if it's even worth mentioning, but uh, that they got within one Buffalo. They had no timeouts left, and they with a minute left, they kicked deep. <laughs> and I, I, I read everything I could read from the time. You know, see, who, did anyone wonder what the heck he was doing? There's no mention of that anywhere. It's very strange. But anyway, <laughs> back to your question. Um, but to the team, I don't think there was such a game because to the team, they from the very beginning, they felt they were going, they were working to get to the Super Bowl, and that was their goal. And so, you know, they knew, they always felt they were going to go to the Super Bowl. Now, uh, as for undefeated, that's different. I don't think anyone was thinking about that until late in the season. But um, of course, the Minnesota game could have, uh, un, you know, could have precluded the perfect season in Game Three. Because they, that was the closest game. They were down in the fourth quarter. They needed two scores in the fourth quarter against the great, great defense. They barely won it at the end of the game. That was a great game. Um, both Jets games were close. Were tough. The Jets were a very tough team that year. Um, but uh, as far as undefeated, I don't think anyone really expected it until very late in the season. Some of the players were talking about it after about 10 games or even eight or nine games. But they didn't not they didn't talk about it in front of Shula because he didn't want to hear a word about undefeated. But some of the guys, Langer and Kuchenberger, were talking about it. And you know, we're ten to know who which we can't win every game. No one can no one can go undefeated in the NFL. So which game we're gonna lose? And they look at the schedule and each week they'd say, Well, we're not gonna lose this week. You know, <laughs> they kept saying that, well, we're not gonna lose this week. And every week uh, it was the same thing, we're not gonna lose this week. So <laughs> I think uh they were de- players were thinking about it late in the year. Shula refused to talk about it, but it just happened one game at a time. Yeah, it's especially because I, 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 I it, you know, obviously a coach is always next game, one game at a time, yeah. and all that. But especially because there had been two 
perfect seasons that were lost in the championship game. I right. I, I, I think there especially had to be a, a you know, a, a bit of a fear of mentioning it and inviting the, jinx, the bad dude. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> they get into the playoffs. They have two pr- pretty tough games to get to the Super Bowl. The divisional round against the Browns. Um, it is a tough game. They, they, they have a strong fourth quarter, 10 points in the fourth quarter to win 2014. And then in a weird scheduling fluke at the time, which again, if you're a modern NFL fan, I, I actually learned this through this book that the hosting of the conference championship games was rotational. And so the dolphins actually had to go to Pittsburgh to play the AFC championship yeah. game. Yeah. Uh, and that seemed like not fun <laughs> playing in Pittsburgh <laughs> in the 1970s, not fun. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, they, they took turns. Uh, if if Oakland, if Franco Harris had not caught that immaculate reception the, the week before, Oakland would have won and Oakland would have had to come to Miami for the AFC championship just because of the way they took turns with the divisions. But because Pittsburgh won on that miraculous play, all of a sudden Miami has to fly out up to Pittsburgh on uh, New Year's Eve. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the toughest place, one of the toughest places to play. They had such rabid fans, huge, huge following there. Luckily, it was not 20 degrees, you know, as it could have been brutally cold, and it was unusually warm. I think it was in the, even in the 50s or at least in the 40s. So it was, not, it was you know, the weather wasn't bad, so that was good. But they did have, you know, it's a tough crowd to play, and it was a tough game. Uh, and you're right, both playoff games were fairly close. They did not play too well against Cleveland in the first one. They were a little, I think they were a little nervous, actually, being undefeated, and now all of a sudden you can't lose a game. Uh, and they were a little, little nervous, but they came through in the end in that one. And of course, in the up in Pittsburgh, uh, Shula brought in Greasy at halftime and gave them a big spark. He threw a long, pa- uh, well, long pass play to Warfield right away, and brought them back. And uh, both good close games, but uh, the Dolphins, I think, it, you know, it seemed even while watching them uh, again, it seemed like they were in control, even though they were close games. That seems to be a really uh, like a, a a running thread through this season. That there were a few blowouts. Uh, certainly, uh, I think of the the Patriots game. I think was fifty two to nothing yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they they weren't afraid to. The, the, their offense was just it was like just you know that that, that medieval torture where the stone is just pressing yeah. on you pressing That's on you right. pressing on you it's yeah. never yeah. just like that it's it's always just we're just going to keep on we're going to get these 15 play 82 yard drives and we're just going to keep the ball off the field and the defense is going to have to play for two minutes and then they're going to swamp you in those two minutes yeah <laughs> just, yeah yeah it's the same recipe over and over again and so it, it didn't produce a ton of these big blowouts but it was just teams even though it looked close they really never had quite much of a chance um God. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, although you know, the next year they had the same team and, and the same strategies, but the next year they were, really were even better. Uh, even though they lost one very close game to Oakland early on, and then they won which they didn't, they were, in which they rested a lot of their starters at the end of the season. So they lost those two games. But in that season, the games were not as close. They really dominated that season, especially in the playoffs and Super Bowl. The second time they just destroyed. Uh, Cincinnati, Oakland, and then Minnesota in the three uh, playoff games. So I think they were even better that year, and they hardly passed at all. They passed even less, you know, in that that Super Bowl. I think Greasy tried six passes the whole game, you know. Yeah. But uh, but you're right. In '72, the perfect season. Uh, a lot. Some of the games looked close on the scoreboard, but you know, like in that Pittsburgh AFC Championship game, there were two 
two seven and a half minute drives in the in the uh, in the both in the fourth quarter. Certainly both in the second half. That's like a whole quarter of play that the offense was just driving down the field and finally scoring. So yeah, it was well. You described it well as a medieval torture machine. <laughs> yeah. So we we arrive in the Super Bowl. We get to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, this kind of palace of American sport, as you uh, mentioned in the book, and. The team is ready, and and they 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 seem to be Coach Hula seems to have a really good way of getting guys in the mindset that that the switch gets flipped and they're ready to go and hit the field. And they play the 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 Washington Redskins, coached by George Allen, um, a team a coach that had really taken the Redskins out of the dumps and into a really strong position. Um, and it everything seems to go right except for one thing <laughs> and you alluded to it earlier yeah. and that is Gary Upremian who is remembered for this one play which is a shame because his story is so fascinating and and among his contemporaries he was a very good kicker um yeah. tell us a little bit about that play and the reaction to it i guess yeah i mean Gary Upremian was a was a great kicker he was the he was the best kicker in the league at that time and later in his last year in Miami he was setting a record for the most consecutive field goals when he got traded and he, and he got the record with, you know, with uh, New Orleans, <laughs> but uh, a great kicker, very interesting guy, the little, very little guy from uh, um, Armenia. He was, well, he was an Armenian from uh, Cyprus and uh, came to this country and really didn't know anything about football, but he was another guy who got a tryout with Miami when he was out of work, out of, you know, no one wanted him and he became this great kicker. Now he's known for this play at the end of the Super Bowl. Uh, he's lining up to kick a 42-yarder, which he normally would make, uh, and that would have made the score 17-0 for the 17-0 season. And mm-hmm. in fact, the owner Joe Robbie was on the seat on the sideline saying just that. He was walking around saying it's going to be 17-0 and 17-0, you know. And he lines up to kick it, and it gets blocked. And he, instead of falling on the ball, he tries to throw, uh, and he, the ball goes straight up in the air. When it comes down, he makes it even worse by batting it up like a volleyball, and finally. Mike Bass of the Redskins grabs it and goes the other way for a touchdown. And suddenly it's 14 to seven with two minutes left. And it's a tense couple minutes there at the end, instead of an easy victory. Um, but the thing that I alluded to earlier is that Shula was the guy who never missed a thing, you know, he left no stone unturned. Well, two months before this game, they were playing a Monday night game against St. Louis in the orange bowl. Uh, and the exact same thing happened. Uh, this was during an easy win, but, he, he had a field goal blocked. He tried to throw it. The ball went straight up in the air. And that time, like everybody just jumped on the ball. There was a big pile up. And, you know, so it wasn't so bad. The other team got the ball, but it wasn't a, such a terrible event. But I'm just amazed that Shula, after that, didn't have Garrow practicing <laughs> every day, practice just falling on the ball. <laughs> you know, you'd think that's what Shula would do. 15 minutes every practice have him kick a ball, have it, you know, come back to him and just fall on it. Yeah. But he didn't, apparently he didn't because the exact same thing happened two months later and it almost cost him the Super Bowl. That's funny. Yeah. And especially because Shula was such a uh, special teams obsessed head coach. Yes. More exactly. than the average bear. He really did care about the third phase of the game and, and just. Yeah. But he let that one go by. Yes. But it was yeah. his only a flesh, flesh wound for the Dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they were able to seal the victory yeah. and they are the perfect team. And, what what do you think is so I'll, I'll I'll let you go you've been so generous with your time that that victory is won what does it mean for the team and the city then 
And what do you think it means for the team and the city now in 2023? Well, it was a huge, obviously a huge thing back then. I mean, the, the, the city of Miami back then, uh, first of all, was not known, had always been known as a, or thought of as a place that couldn't support a, a major team, you know, and the, the, the Dolphins had only been there for it was their seventh season, I think. And uh, they were still the only major sports team in the whole state of Florida. So uh, it really it was uh, um, Larry King, who I got the interview before he passed away. He was, and he was, um, he did color commentary for the Dolphins among, among other things. You know, he started his radio career in Miami and he loved that team so much. And he said that that team really brought the city together. Um, you know, Miami was a place, it, w- it was not a, a big metropolis as you, as you alluded to. Um, most people were from elsewhere coming down. Most people were from the North. Uh, there weren't that many Miami natives there and um, people just, there are all different kinds of people. It was still thought of as a vacation place mainly. But the team really put them on the map and brought people together and everyone came together in support of the Dolphins. And I think having such a magical season was really had a big uh, impact on the city and on everyone living there as it did on, on me and, you know, and small kids growing up at the time. It was just such a huge thing. Uh, so much so that, you know, for 50 years, I might, I'm thinking about writing a book about this, but <laughs> uh, finally did. But um, for, as far as today, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the Dolphins, of course, they had great years with Marino, but never won the Super Bowl. And then in the 21st century, it's been pretty bleak. This year, I think they have a very exciting team. It's been sad. They've had so many injuries, you know, and especially to uh, uh, with his head injuries, very sad to see. And you know, I hope he's hope he'll be okay. I don't know if he's going to play again or not. But it, uh, you know, it seemed like a really exciting season this year for the first time in a long time. And but I think that perfect team always hangs over them and it's something i think that dolphins fans certainly uh, are proud about and uh, the city still remembers them they they had them all there for the halftime presentation of the pittsburgh game earlier this year and you know they're they're it's fun for them too for these old players uh you know that they they still have this unique achievement no one else has ever done i think it's a lot of fun for them and for the city that it's kept going for so long sure absolutely so um, Marshall John Fisher, thank you so much for your time today to kind of talk about this fascinating team, this fascinating chapter in, in Miami history. The book 17 and 0, Miami 1972, and the NFL's only perfect season. Do go and check it out at your local bookseller, or, or we'll be sharing a link online where people can get it as well. It's a, it's a fascinating read. Mr. Fisher, thank you again so much. Thanks, Matthew. I enjoyed it. The author, Marshall John Fisher. The book, 17 and 0, Miami, 1972, and the NFL's only perfect season. Again, we always encourage you to buy a book from your local bookseller, like Books and Books down here in South Florida. If you can't find it there, do be sure to check it out at a seller like Barnes and Noble or Amazon, and I'll be sure to include links to those sellers in the description of the show. If you like what you hear, always remember that it's wonderful if you can leave a review of the show on your preferred podcast provider like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you can't, that's okay, but it is appreciated. Do make sure you follow or subscribe to this show on your preferred podcast provider so you know when the next episode drops. And follow us on your preferred social media platform, whether that's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even on Mastodon and Post now. Uh, There's always a few goodies in between episodes each month where you can find out more information about Miami. 
Um, so thanks again for listening. Uh, if you have suggestions for episode ideas or if you just want to give some feedback, be sure to reach out to us on social media or thisdaymiamipod at gmail.com. And until next time, I've been Matthew Bunch. at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.